Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 418th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. I'm really glad to be back broadcasting across the world in this our ninth year from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. The phone's ringing. It might be somebody important. We had a great time in Australia. Gave a presentation in Melbourne to the Entertainment Technology Conference. Got a new client that I'll tell you about in the near future that's really exciting. And uh, it was terrific. It was a good trip. Had lots of fun. Only just got back today, so I've been sitting on my butt for about 16 and a half hours or something, um, a little bit weary, but here we go. Now, a lot of businesses are struggling, yet those that have great service are thriving. I know that sounds like a cliche, but if you've got great service, your business will be successful. The backbone of great service is empowerment, so... You know, service is great when any employee can make a fast, empowered decision on the spot in favour of the customer. You know, you know yourself, if you're talking to a phone company, for example, on the which is probably the person you complain about the most, and the um, person you're speaking to can say, look, I'll give you 50 bucks discount or I'll give you 100 bucks discount or I'll do something and they can do it on the spot, you like them a hell of a lot more than you do if they can't do it. So no asking for approvals, no delays, no moving the request up to the chain of command. You know, nothing worse than I'll talk to my boss and I'll see what I can do and we'll get back to you. You know, doesn't work. So most CEOs, I think most CEOs probably believe that their employees are empowered. The reality is they're not. And the description of empowerment for most companies is um, you're empowered to take care of the customer as long as it fits into our rules and our policies and it doesn't cost us any money. So if you can fit in with those three things, go for it. Now, the ludicrous part of that is that most empowered decisions are under $50 and um, the majority of those are under $25. So this absolutely no reason why companies can't empower their staff and even if it's only a $50 it's a gesture that you can make right then and right there you might have to go further but that'll work but um, you know just being nice to people and stuff is not empowerment and empowerment's the hardest skill to get employees to use because employees sit there and they they don't want to feel empowered and they don't want to give anything to the customer because they, even if the customer's really, really, really pissed, they're afraid they're going to get fired. Or what if I have to, what if I give them a hundred bucks compensation and I have to make the hundred bucks up? And many managers don't like empowerment because they think they're being usurped, they're losing their power. Now, nobody likes to be screamed at or put down. 
And rarely does an employee get recognised for making a fast, empowered decision in favour of the customer. Rarely does the boss say, oh, congratulations, you saved that problem, solved that problem, and it only cost me 1500 bucks. Congratulations. But they should. Ritz-Carlton empowers its employees to spend up to $2,000 a customer to make a customer happy. So if you go and stay at a Ritz-Carlton and you yell and scream and bitch and moan about something, you can get up to 2000 bucks without it ever having to be approved by management. You go into Starbucks and um, you have a, a service issue, you can get a free drink or a coupon or whatever instantly without anybody referring to anyone. And um, people love that. Frontline employees are the most powerful when it comes to empowerment. It's got to be that person on the front line. Once you start passing it up the chain, it loses it. So what frontline employees, it's magic what they can do. And as the request moves up the chain, the final decision has much less value. And, you know, the majority of customers um, – won't really complain. They might mention a complaint, but they won't bitch and bitch and bitch and bitch and bitch. What they will do is they won't come back ever. And what's worse, they'll tell all their friends and their friends won't come back either, ever. So how expensive is that? It's a hell of a lot more expensive than empowering your staff to make a decision in favour of the customer. So not enough companies and employees understand the power of word of mouth. And your single goal each day is not just to have happy customers, but have knock their socks off happy customers so they become advocates for you. Then you've got them for life and you've got their friends for life. They come to your business more often. They're willing to pay higher prices which gives you a bigger margin. They tell all their friends. They're resistant to advertising by your competitors. So you want customers to fall in love with you and your organization. And the best way to do that is through your frontline staff. I guess all of you have dealt with Amazon and they're fabulous if you have a problem. You know, their employees are all over the world and they're all trained in the skills of keeping a customer happy. They increased sales last year by $55 billion. Yet you never see them advertised, do you? It's all word of mouth. So the word of mouth gets them massive growth. So with most, with most companies... They're going bankrupt all over the place because customer service is either non-existent or it sucks. Either way, doesn't work. Customers demand speed, price, and great service. And don't say you can't give them. Amazon does every day. So how do you, can you get employees to make empowered decisions? One, and the obvious one, is you train everyone on empowerment. You know, there's no schools anywhere that teach this skill. It's up to you and your firm to trust your staff, determine the most frequent issues that arise and provide guidelines to your team. And they'll take it from there. 
recognition. Celebrate every time you hear or see an employee make an empowered decision. Ring a bell. Do something. Give it credit. So the more you want to make a big deal out of it, other people, other employees will see that employee was not fired and got lots of recognition, will get more confident and be more prepared to compensate guests and keep them happy. So empowered employees have the power to make decisions without a supervisor. They're entitled to go off script. They're entitled to bend the rules. They can do whatever they need to do if they believe it's the right thing to do for the customer. Empowered employees take pride in ownership in their jobs. And when they know that they can exercise independent judgment, they're happy little campers. So empower those employees of yours. It pays major dividends. Do you get my 30-second read daily business newsletter? We've now got about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes 30 seconds to read every day. Well, I, I was confronted by somebody in Australia in the street, can you believe it, who came up and said, I get your newsletter and I love it, but it takes me at least two minutes every day to read it. Well, two minutes out of your life to be the smartest kid on the block isn't much because we give you all the latest advice on things like medicines, new apps, new technology, Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, Bitcoin, other cryptos. We keep you right in the know. Now, today's newsletter, if you if you didn't receive it, was about Zachary Moore, who for 22 years sat in a nine-foot by six-foot prison cell. At 15, he was sentenced to life for murder. Now 38. He's got a full-time job in Silicon Valley as a software engineer. He's earning $150,000 a year. And I guess the question that a lot of people ask is, you know, should a convicted killer really be given a second chance so they can have a great life and earn $150K a year? My thought is absolutely. And, you know, something else I found out that was interesting while I was doing that story People who are petty, crappy criminals, you know, they steal things and break, steal cars and do all that sort of stuff. When they get arrested, when they get out of jail, usually they're back in jail in about three months. Murderers, when they get out of jail, less than 1% go back to jail. So 99 murderers out of every 100 go on the straight and narrow when they get out of jail, either that or they don't get caught. So the one business, one media vehicle you can trust for up-to-date information in business this is the Bob Pritchard newsletter. And if you want to receive it, and you should, just go straight to my website, bobpritchard.com, and subscribe. Now, the influence of mega influencers is waning. You know, the people like Kim Kardashian with 950 zillion um, followers, most of whom are bought and are non-existent, don't really, they're not really out there, um, they're not very effective. The people are the most effective that are people that have got between 50 and, well, between 20 and 50,000 uh, followers and are in a reasonable size catchment area are highly effective. So, you know, our society's 
fascinated with influences from fitness gurus to, you know, all sorts of people, people who are famous for being famous. <coughs> it's baffling to many, including me. Um, companies will spend an estimated $8.5 billion this year on influencer marketing. And I've got to say to you that I'm a director of a influencer marketing company, so I'm all for it. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's a great way to get your message out there. It's hard to say how much power influencers have because it's difficult to trace product sales directly back to specific campaigns, especially in the land of social media where bots roam free and influencers buy likes. By one estimate, this misleading engagement inflation will cost advertisers $1.3 billion out of their $8.5 billion, which means about 20%, I guess, of um, influencers are fake. So, um, and some advertisers are frustrated by misleading engagement numbers and low return on investment. And deluxe brands are fed up with the self-entitled social elite. So while engagement rates for influencer posts are declining as consumers grow more sceptical about the credibility of social product plugs amid, amid their saturated feeds, I mean, can you imagine Kim Kardashian doing an ad for a weight loss product? Would you believe it? No. So I think the icing has come off this cake. Facebook and Instagram's plans to hide likes delivers a huge blow to the core equity of mega influencers. So it's out with the mass market and in with the niche market. My guest today is a really interesting guy. Dave Hodgson is a director and co-founder of NEM Ventures. Now, this is a really all-encompassing, great organisation. He's a super guy and uh, he's got a really big thing happening here. It's a venture capital and investment arm of the NEM blockchain enterprise. Um, it is brilliant. So this is Bob Pritchard and I'll be back right after the break with Dave Hodgson. See you in a minute. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com.
You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. For over the last eight plus years and some 400 plus interviews, we've given you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people. We talk about the services that they provide, the challenges that they faced, how they overcame them, and what it is that makes them tick, or at least we try to find out what makes them tick. Everyone that's an entrepreneur faces the same issues and challenges, but when you're in the middle of it, it doesn't seem like that. (laughs) And that's why it's important for all entrepreneurs, in fact, everybody that's in an executive position, to listen to interviews like we have on our program and others, read biographies, and as I've said a hundred times, get yourself some mentors and not people that are yes people that think you're wonderful and will say yes to every inane idea that you have, but people who have been there and done that and have been successful and and know the ropes and are prepared to tell you when an idea is crap. So you need somebody that's pretty straight talking, but you really do need to have mentors. It'll save you a lot of grief over the years. Now, Dave Hodgson is the director and co-founder of NEM Ventures, which is a venture capital and investments arm of the NEM blockchain ecosystem. Dave's got 15 years experience consulting to various sizes of organizations and government agencies, NGOs, on technology projects. He's a technology nerd, and he's bloody Scottish. I mean, who's ever heard of a Scottish technology nerd? Um, He was an early adopter and program lead for public cloud projects, having led multiple large organizations through their adoption programs, and he moved into blockchain as a natural progression as the industry and technology began to mature. At NEM Ventures, Dave and his co-founders have delivered a mandate from the NEM community to formalise a distributed autonomous grant scheme into an investment vehicle with an initial fund size of $10 million in year one. So NEM Ventures specialises in high-tech investments, promoting the growth of the ecosystem through strategic investments in projects which align with the ethos of the NEM community. NEM Ventures focuses on projects which demonstrate a truly differentiated product, the ability to generate positive income in the medium term, and founders who showcase the desire to move the blockchain ecosystem forward, which seems just about every entrepreneur that I meet these days. Founded in 2018, NEM Ventures comprises a small, highly motivated team of investment and technology professionals. I've got Dave on the line from Mexico, where I'll be tomorrow. Hi, Dave. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right around the world. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having us on the show. Uh, That's a great introduction. I think I might have to pinch that. I can't say it more precisely myself. So... um, 
I don't, when I think of Scotland, I don't think of Scotland as being a terribly high-tech sort of hub of activity. Am I totally wrong? Uh, no, that's probably fair. So we have a couple of pockets where we have uh, more high-tech development, particularly around fintech. So Edinburgh yeah. has, uh, has quite a buzzing scene. But uh, I've spent most of the last 20 years outside Scotland. I've only just come back in the last year or so. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I've moved around through Australia, New Zealand, South America, and uh, yeah, been around technology hubs for most of the last 20 years. Yeah, well, being out of being out of Scotland sounds to me like a great idea. Um, <laughs> so, tell me about yourself and your background. How did you start in as a technologist, if you like? Uh, yes, I actually started off originally uh, on a business track and um, working for a finance house during the the dot com boom, and it was right. a fairly traditional structured finance house that offers retail products to investors. Uh, through that. I got involved in analyzing the performance of stocks for uh, the high-tech companies of the day, some of which are now obviously massive. Um, and from there, got more of an interest in technology, moved out to Australia and uh, did a post-grad in IT out there and uh, moved off onto graduate trainee programs and it just kind of snowballed from there um, up to enterprise architect and CIO ultimately. So uh, I come from a very, very much a crossover background. I can sit quite comfortably in technology-based discussions with programmers and infrastructure guys, but I'm equally comfortable sitting and having a chat with the, the finance officers and the HR officers about what, what it is they're trying to do. Um, and as a technologist, that marries very nicely both the public cloud and the blockchain, because ultimately the only reason you're spending money on tech and the only reason these tech solutions exist is to achieve something, and you've got to try yeah. to find what that something is and explain it in a way that you can hit. So you're on the, you're on the technology side of... Um, any adventures, or are you on the money raising side, or does everybody do everything? Uh, I'm smack in the middle. So um, I got into NEM originally through a, a project as a I was a fractional CIO at the time, doing an options analysis of various different blockchains because we wanted to enable peer to peer trading of energy, and we selected NEM, and it was myself that led that that options analysis. From right. there, I got chatting to some of the guys in the community, uh, and the requirement for them ventures came up and because of sitting between the two different sides i have networks on both so i was able to pull some guys in who have got a more traditional finance background and obviously bridge the, the gap with the blockchain tech guys so i sit squarely in the middle but the structure is very flat we've only got a team of uh, five kind of core members so there is definitely an element of us all doing a bit of everything are you finding that um, more and more traditional funders um are entering into the blockchain space or, well, we know they're more interested, but are they actually migrating across to the blockchain space yet? Yeah, they are. It's still being led by the more progressive traditional funding sources. Um, so you've got companies like Fidelity, for example, have come out and said that they're structuring a financial product for the crypto and blockchain space. JP Morgan have launched their own coin, obviously. Mm. Um, and then you've got companies like Facebook coming in as well. So we are definitely getting much more mainstream adoption now than we were even maybe 12, 18 months ago. Uh, and it just feels like it's starting to snowball in that, that respect. Yeah, uh, We're getting quite a few requests from traditional VCs as well who know that there's a lot of stuff happening in the space and that there's a lot of uh, investment opportunity there but don't necessarily have the backgrounds or the capabilities in blockchain to do that. So we've got a few co-investment partners that 
um, ask us to to funnel projects their way when there are investment rounds that we're not filling the whole the whole round for. So there's definitely a lot of interest now from the traditional funding options. And, yeah, and there's so many um, blockchain opportunities now. I've got, I've I've we've done a lot of programs on blockchain. I've been a big supporter of blockchain and crypto for a while. Sometimes I wonder why, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But I've been, a, like this morning, for example, um, but um, I've been a you know, big supporter of it and, and I've interviewed people from people using the blockchain to distribute aid in Africa to people that with governments that are using blockchain to um, pay entitlements to people that are using blockchain to um, register art and it just goes on. People using blockchain to distribute produce I mean, it just it. There seems to be no end to the number of people that are using blockchain to um, um, control, or control. I guess control is not the right word, but to register trade and um, and all sorts of commerce. Just amazing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, the number of use cases. I'm still amazed even now. Every week, something comes in that I'm like, man, I wouldn't have thought of applying it in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, people are getting really creative with, with how they're using it. Um, and some of them start out from being just a really simplified, secure, robust, scalable database. And really, that's all it is, is a glorified database. Mm. Um, and then, obviously, once you get onto different chains, you have you know, automated contracts and a whole different space on that on that side. And the AI guys now are all getting involved as well, obviously, because yep. it facilitates kind of group, group learning for them. Um, it's one of the reasons why I go into the space is that the level of variety that you get right now in the industry is pretty much unmatched in any other technology spaces and the other investment spaces, to be fair. Um, so it just keeps me really switched on and, and motivated all the time when I get up to all these new ideas. Yeah. Well, what's, it go, what's blockchain going to do to banks? I mean, banks have been doing this bullshit about, you know, borrowing money at 1% and loaning it back to you at 8% for so long. Um, that that has got to stop sooner rather than later. Um, so where do you see that going? Are we going to be? Yeah, so we're already. Sorry, we've already seen a start to it. Obviously, um, particularly the sort of low-hanging fruit of things like cross-border payments, where I don't know, it might take you. I mean, obviously, with your accent, you're an Aussie, and I'm sure you spent money sending cash back and forth from the US to Australia. Yeah, that might take you three, three five days. Probably cost you. 20, 30, 40 bucks. Yep. Alternatively, you could just make a quick Bitcoin transaction, cost you 50 cents, and it'll take like an hour or two. Um, yep. If you did that on them, it'll take you a few minutes and it'll cost you even less. Um, so that's a really, really easy one. There's plenty of low-hanging fruit like that that's, that's already starting to uh, to dissipate down out of the banks. Um, the other side, obviously, is that um, with projects like MakerDAO, for example, we're starting to get now into collateralized loans based on crypto where you can transparently see who owns what and it's escrowed automatically and you don't have to trust anybody in the middle yeah, um, it just starts to cut out, cut out so many middlemen you've got loads of efficiencies that can just basically be spread across the across the community really um, so yeah I, I think banks are probably doing for a bit of a rough time over the next few years and there's still a place for them really sure, and they're not going to anytime <laughs> soon but, uh, yeah my granny's never going to be paying with XCM I don't think <laughs> but um yeah, I think over time, the, the importance is just going to drop. I mean, it's it, it just seems natural at this stage. We've got enough inertia now. Banks have been such predatory bastards for so long, 
it is about time that they were disrupted seriously, I reckon. Anyway, that's just my personal yeah. opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely divides the community. Eh? It's, uh, there's some pretty strongly held views on both sides. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about any inventions. Um, how does it differ from the blockchain and foundation? Yeah, so the, the ecosystem has uh, four main components to it. Obviously, we've got the, the core technology, which is a NEM protocol, yeah. which is uh, broadly comparable with Stellar or Cardano or any of the other chains that, that, that do specific stuff. Uh, yeah. We focus predominantly on enterprise adoption. Um, so with that, we have then three partner entities, if you like. NEM Ventures invests in projects that basically are for the good of the ecosystem. They're either building on them or they somehow enhance the experience for the community in some way um, and we have a very defined mandate on that we do manage some partnerships and naturally we're around things like trading desks and OTC partners a bit more often um, just because of the type of backgrounds that the guys have got sure. then the NEM Foundation has a, a fairly defined mandate as well so they're focused on product development of anything that is not the core underlying protocol so that might be mobile wallets uh, learning portals for training um, all of that that kind of stuff that supports the ecosystem in general and, and adds to the experience. They also pick up uh, a lot of the marketing and the comms and the brand positioning um, and the go-to-market strategies. So this year we've got a, a launch of version two, or Catapult as it's, it's codenamed, it's due to come out towards the end of the year. So the foundation are very focused just now on making sure that all of the product delivery drives behind that type of release. We're actually looking for projects that build on it, but that's very much their focus just now. And then finally, there's a an entity that most people wouldn't be aware of um, if in the English-speaking world called Tech Bureau, which is a Japanese independent company that actually funds the core development team. So they funded the, the original tech development um, and own an enterprise closed source license for that, which they implement with various different enterprises. And I think they're up over 300 now at last count when I was speaking wow. to uh, Japan. But because it's in the Japanese-speaking community, obviously the, there's a big disconnect in terms sure. of language there. So it's, it's often not heard of in the English-speaking world. Um, and they're still funding the Catapult development. So they basically own the enterprise license for implementing that over there and then give the technology open source to the public chain, right. um, which is the, the one that we all use. Um, so, yeah, we got th those four entities, basically. So, Catapult, what a fantastic name. That is such a good yeah. name. At a time it's when... Short future, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. At a time when almost every word in the English language is used, I wouldn't have thought you would have been able to get it. <laughs> so. No, I'd love to take credit for it, but uh, it was somebody else's brilliant idea. It's a great idea. <laughs> it's a nice one, isn't it? Yeah, it's lovely. It, it lends itself really nicely to marketing campaigns as well. Yeah. Um, so when you want to back a project, what criteria do you look for? Yeah, so we got uh, four so many projects out measure there. Sorry, well, that broke up in the middle. What was that one? There's so many projects out there, it must be very difficult to determine, you know, which one to support. Yeah, it definitely is. So we we have, a, I guess, an initial filter. that The project must be able to clearly explain to us how they enhance them, whether they're building on it, whether they're opening up a Fiat gateway, taking them to the moon, whatever it is they're going to do. They need to be able to tell us how that helps the community in a coherent way. And then after that, to be honest, the last three are probably more like traditional investment houses. Um, so we're looking for a, a credible team that has a really clear vision, sure. ideally a massive vision so they can scale properly. Um, they need to be able to build a commercially viable 
product around that or offering around that. Um, we're not interested in, in backing great technical innovations that have no go-to-market strategy. Right. Uh, otherwise, we, we become unsustainable ourselves. Um, and then that finally leads on to we need to be able to see a point in which we can make a positive financial return. So whether that's an exit, subsequent seed round, STO, all that kind of stuff. Um, but those last three, that's just kind of investment 101, um, really. And we just apply that to projects that work in the name ecosystem. So would you have a situation where somebody brings you a project and they don't have um, all the technology and whatever else goes with it? totally in place yet would you go in and help them with your technology skills or would you say go away and find yourself some tech guys and come back uh, we do a bit of both so we will take very early stage ideas um, if they don't have any of the tech built we obviously are a little bit suspect as to how committed they really are to them sure. um, as a product so that notwithstanding um, if they need a bit of help to get that over the line or if they need introducing to a partner that can help them with that because we're well embedded in the community and we've got networks in most of the geographical regions what we prefer to do rather than fix it ourselves is say to them guys this looks like a good vision we can see where you're going with this but you clearly need a bit of help why don't you go speak to these guys and come back in a few weeks and we'll continue the conversation but similarly if they've turned up with a tech product that's completely finished and they don't have a business plan or financial forecasts etc Yep. Uh, we will have a look at those as well and have on occasion helped coach people through it. But a lot of it depends on the opportunity and really how credible the founders are and how good their vision is. Um, if we can really buy into what it is they're trying to do, we will give them more support than you might expect from a VC that's not focused on trying to grow an ecosystem in addition to making financial return. Obviously, ultimately, we benefit if the ecosystem does well. So yeah, we sure. can afford to, to invest a little bit in the projects yep. outside of the finance, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it, I guess it increases your margin in the company too. Which yeah, definitely. Which has uh, got to help. Ultimately, we hold up we hold our budgets in XEM. So if projects are building on XEM and they're successful, even if we don't invest in them, the adoption goes up, and therefore the currency price goes up, and our budget ultimately does well anyway. So we kind of we have a bit of a win-win there um, as well. That we we do see some financial return from it, even if they don't take investment from us. Right. So how um what sort of projects are you working on now? So we've uh, literally this morning just uh, signed our second investment ticket. Um, it was announced probably about two hours ago, I think. Um, a company called Moby, and they're a Melbourne-based, well, split between Melbourne and Darwin, but an Aussie-based company that uh, have an app which enables ride-sharing. So if you think of Melbourne, you've got, uh, I think the figures are something like 2 million commuters and 1.3 million car drivers yeah. going in uh, the city every day to get, get to work. These guys have got an app which allows you to get to know the people in those other cars and try and ride share or carpool, basically. Um, the app has various different inbuilt safety features, similar to the type of stuff you might find with Uber or Lyft or Grab or any of the, the sort of commercial taxi type operations. Um, but it's very focused on the community, speaking to the community and helping themselves and reduce the, the climate impact of, of commuting. Um, and XEM gets worked into that as a payment mechanism and as, a, as an escrow, fun, escrow function uh, initially so that you'll be able to take payment at the start of the trip and then release it at the end so the driver knows they're definitely going to get paid but the, the rider knows that unless the trip is okay and they're safe that the money's not released. Those, those kinds of features. Um, and it, it's a young young startup. The guys are, I think, 21 and 22 from memory. 
Um, they've been going for about 12 months now. They've already got a, an alpha product out without blockchain in it, which has been piloted with a couple hundred people. And they've, uh, they've managed to land themselves three partnerships with different universities around Australia to help scale that out to the students. So they've got access to, I think it was about 40,000 uh, students and professors and other okay. university workers that they can, they can focus on. Um, it's a really nice little uh, compact business, and it's, it's a fairly early C-stage investment. How, how, how's that got any advantages over an Uber or a Lyft? Well, I know Lyft's not in Australia, but let's say Uber. How, how, how's it got any advantages? What? So it's just average. I find out that the guy next... With it's a lot less. could cost heaps less um, because it's not a taxi. So if, you, if you're paying... Um, for an Uber ride, for example, you, there's a commercial transaction there, which is particularly in Australia is licensed very differently. Yeah, so no, that it's might ridiculous. Cost you, I know what was fifteen dollars or something for a ride. Um, whereas if you go in with your next door neighbour or the guy in the street over over the way that you don't know, um, you're basically just covering his gas fees and a bit of maintenance to the car, and you're not allowed to pay more than a set amount. Otherwise, it becomes a commercial offering. So for the rider, it's a lot cheaper, uh, and for the driver, it means that. Without having to go out and get a taxi license and run an Uber, you can have some contribution towards the running cost of your car, and you're going there anyway. So it, uh, it's just a bit more efficient because the car's going there anyway. You just stack some more people in it, basically. Yeah. So how do you guys make, or how does the company make a profit out of that? Uh, so the all the transactions that come through that payment system, there's a, a very small percentage taken off it. I can't remember the number off the top of my head. Um, and if you pay an XEM then you get 20% off that, that number. Um, company takes revenue off that. Um, they also partner with enterprises who will pay them to be part of a partnership scheme to allow the app to be white-labeled or pushed into their employees to um, promote ride-sharing and carpooling with their employees. Now, companies in most developed countries and certainly in Australia where the climate change is having a bit of an impact have targets to help them reduce carbon emissions. That's yeah. one way that they can they can contribute towards that uh, and they're prepared to pay for a partnership that allows them to, to roll that out and um, obviously Moby correct the funds on that as well um, yeah it, it has a, the nice attributes that it scales very easily outside of the initial pilot cities as well yeah, so sure. you're going very much for a large number of transactions with a small clip on each rather than high value um, and then obviously that relies on scale yeah and I guess from a government's point of view it, it actually, it's a scheme that actually does take cars off the road. I know Uber and Lyft say that they take cars off the road, but in fact, I don't think they do. I've seen research that says that Uber and Lyft actually increase the number of cars on the road um, at any time of the day. Um, where this yeah, it certainly, certainly does definitely lift, lift cars off the road or lift the, the, the load on public transport. So you, you might generate more seats on a bus that means that they don't need to stick on a second bus, for example, or uh, it's a very simplistic example. But yeah, it definitely can contribute towards it. And there's schemes around, um, so I've spent quite a few years in New Zealand and there's certainly plenty of rideshare and carpooling schemes around already that don't involve blockchain and are you know, done with paper forms, etc. Um, and they've definitely proven it has, a, has an impact on city commuting particularly. <laughs> and with the with the uni partnerships, it's particularly interesting because a lot of the students tend to live in the same zones of the city, and they're yeah, all going to the same place. And you're dealing with large numbers of people at the same same times a day, quite often outside normal commuting hours. Um, so their public transport offerings might not be quite so frequent, and all that kind of stuff. So it actually does 
help them. Yeah. Generally with them. It helps them meet other students as well. So you've got the social aspect to that type of community. Yes. Sorry, sorry for the little chuckle in the middle of that, but I was having trouble understanding um, um, New Zealand and cities with traffic problems. There's only five <laughs> people live in the whole bloody country. <laughs> yeah, we've only got two roads, so it's all right. <laughs> now, Wellington and Auckland have uh, have pretty bad traffic problems, actually, because the, the infrastructure is not set up to deal with the number of cars that are on it. Yeah. Um, it's just that the, road, the roads are heaps smaller than Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They are. Um, how has them uh, ventures fared coming out of the bear market of 2018 and during the first few months of 2019? Because this, we're, it looks like we're going into a pretty bullish um, time now, I reckon. Yeah, I mean, if you ignore the last sort of 24, 48 hours worth of prices, which feel like a blip, I'd agree. It feels like we're uh, we're definitely now into bullish territory, and we're certainly very bullish on markets in general and XTM. Um, we've actually fared very, very well because weirdly, we're probably one of the only VCs that founded in the middle of the bear market. So, yeah, um, one of the motivations for founding Lem Ventures was to ensure we had a sustainable return going back into the community's funds, the reserve pools, um, and obviously in the middle of a bear market that. Uh, that need just becomes that little bit more amplified um, because prices are falling and the values of budgets are going down. Um, so weirdly, then ventures and entity fared, fared fantastically from the bear market because it was one of the things that propelled us into existing. Um, in terms of investments, um, we had the same challenges as everybody else with falling prices. Uh, we do have a trader that works for us pretty much full-time. Um, I mean, he's been doing a fantastic job of keeping us uh, keeping us afloat and, and actually profitable even in the bear market and obviously coming into the bull we're now uh, yeah we're fairly aggressively positioned to try and try and take advantage of that I'm saying. yeah and I guess because um, because there's such a great interest in the area um, you would continue to attract money even in a even in a bad market because you're not after all the money you're only after a fairly small lick really and um, that would be less and particularly when the you know, property sucks. Um, the share market sucks. You know, where, where are you going to put your money? So putting your money into something that's new and on the cutting edge of something as hot as, as blockchain, um, you'd think that you wouldn't have trouble attracting investment. Yeah, definitely. And because we've got our own investment budget already allocated from community funds. So we went through a community vote back in September to use some of the reserve pools. So we're, we're not even out for investment directly ourselves. But there are also very few people who are, or not very few, but few people who are writing tickets in the middle of the bear market. Yeah. But because we want to increase adoption on the blockchain, we're one of the companies that are actively investing in the middle of it um, and actually still giving money out effectively or investing money to to create commercial gain off it. So we're helping drive that um, that recovery, at least we we believe we are. <laughs> yeah. It's obviously very, very difficult to know actually what's what's going on in terms of the um, the trading volume. But uh, yeah, I certainly personally am I'm extremely bullish on, on multiple coins just now and, and the industry in general. Um, yeah, not, oh, and yeah, I wouldn't be there if I wasn't. So. <laughs> yeah, while you're saying you're bullish on multiple coins, you only... I'm 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 bullish on platform coins. I'm not so bullish on you know the regular um, coin that some guy dreamed up because he thought it was a good idea. But platform yeah, coins. Yeah, I, I, I only invest, invest in the protocol level coins personally. Um, 
some of the some of the projects that have utility tokens have really solid use cases, and you can see where the utility might come from. But uh, personally, I prefer the platform coins as well. Um, yeah. It's a lot easier to tangibly see where the value comes from. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. So you, you had a, a sort of a, a boring, a tr- traditional boring old finance background. Um, what skill set have you brought with you from that period? to um, any inventions that has been a big advantage for you? Yeah, so my, my finance background wasn't vast. I probably spent uh, maybe two, three years, something like that, uh, at a finance house. But because a lot of the time I was literally in the call center justifying performance of various different trust funds um, based on technology trends, and it was very fast-moving technology back then. We're going back to probably 2000, 2001. So you were um, the apology just- guy. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Just as the table worst, trying try to explain why it had happened and what was going on, etc. To um, sometimes mature investors, but generally retail investors, um, that kind of quick moving market, in particular falling market, there's a lot of similarity between what we were seeing then and what happens in crypto today. Um, so jumping on exchanges and watching all of the various different technical analysis charts, that stuff's still the same. Right. There's new. New additions to it, um, probably 25% of new measures in there, and certainly different pricing um, patterns and cycles to look for. But uh, the base baseline analysis is still pretty pretty similar. Um, I also was a bit involved a bit in forex back then as well, and that's pretty much pure speculation. So when you get into speculative bubble on on crypto, and obviously they, they do happen in cycles, um, responds very similarly. Um, but from there, I, I jumped over to IT. So it was probably two or three years in finance and then 15 years in, in enterprise IT projects yeah. and the latter half of that predominantly in energy and startups. So, yeah, I've got a, a fairly varied background, which allows me to sit uh, very comfortably in, in most conversations and at least in, in my view, add value in conversations. You'd have to ask the other guys if it actually does add value. So does the finance background help you on, with the, in the tech space? I suppose it does here because uh, it's, it's really, yeah. truly really a financial, really very financial tech space, isn't it? Yeah, it does. And certainly in fintech, obviously, it helps hugely. Um, it also helps to be able to understand when you're sitting in front of a board with a, an accountant and a lawyer and a CEO that may or may not have a tech background. It helps you to be able to explain in words that the exec team understand yeah. why they should care about this technology because whilst as a technologist I might look at it and say this widget over here does loads of cool stuff and that one's awesome and the next one's great if I go and produce, present that in front of a, an exec team at an enterprise all they hear is just noise and, and tech yeah. nerd speak so you need to abstract it out to plain English and, and explain hey guys if you do this that's going to save you 10% of your cost base help you comply with this HR regulation help you with climate XYZ etc um, and the tech is then just how you help them get there yeah so the finance background helps from that perspective because you can just you can help translate, obviously into finance speak to it more easily. Yeah, I guess I guess it's hard enough for um, um, boards to understand your accent, far less understand what you're saying. Well, <laughs> I should talk, right? It's, uh, <laughs> well, I had a Kiwi accent up until recently. Um, weirdly, this is actually a really softened version of the accent where I'm from. So I'm from a little fishing village in the far north, and there. Uh, yeah, that accent is tough even for me now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're getting short on time, but 
what do um, any adventures and any of them have in store for the next 12 months? Are you focusing on anything in particular? Catapult. Just catapult. Yeah, big, biggest one. Sorry, Bob, there's a slight lag there, so I think I'm talking over the top of you occasionally. Um, yeah, basically, we've got catapult coming out this year, so there's a huge amount of effort going behind that just now. The dev teams are fully focused on it. Foundation's pretty much fully focused on it. Uh, Ventures are looking for, for projects that are taking up. We've had the the initial development releases come out now. It's not quite the full f- feature set. There's a few months to go until that fully gets released, but there is a dev version there people can already start developing on and projects are already starting to use. So as ventures, we're, we're spending most of the next 12 months um, getting excited about Catapult, getting out there, speaking about it, and looking for companies that are building on it. Right. Dave, thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, particularly from Mexico, where you're probably sitting around having a margarita right now. Um, oh, having a beer next to the pool, mate. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so to contact Dave and any adventures, go to nemventures.io. That's nemventures.io. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the 418th Bob Pritchard Straight Talking No Bullshit Business Radio Show. We're coming at you on Voice America Business Network, broadcasting today, back in our studios in Hollywood after doing two shows from the shores of Sydney Harbour in Australia. It was great, but I'm really glad to be back. Um, In the United States, people only stay in a job for about three years. And there are 157 million workers. And if each person applies for six jobs every time they apply for a job, that's about 400 million resumes written every year. 400 million. And most of those resumes mean that the applicant is dead in the water before the person even gets them. Laszlo Bock, who's a former Senior Vice President of People Operations at Google. Don't you love the titles at Google? I'm the Vice President of People Operations. You know, I expect him to be there with a a scalpel scalpel on an operating table. But he's reviewed more than 20,000 resumes over 15 years at Google. And he's seen five common mistakes over and over again. And these simple mistakes, and they're really simple mistakes, can make or or break your opportunity for getting an interview. So, you know, they get so many interviews that if it's not good, it's a bit like pitch decks. We talk about pitch decks all the time. If your pitch deck's not good, if somebody's getting 100 a day and yours is crappy, it disappears in about four seconds. So... So here here are the five mistakes that you must avoid, and they're made all the time. The first mistake is lack of formatting. A very messy and illegible resume is a resume that will get you absolutely nowhere. 
Keep your formatting clean and organised using black ink on white paper with half-inch margins. Don't try to be a smart-ass and do all trick stuff because it doesn't work. Align columns. Have consistent spacing. And put your name and your contact details on every single page, not just the first or the last. Put it on every page. The second mistake you should avoid is enclosing confidential information. Pay attention to policies and avoid creating a conflict between employer needs and your own needs. For example, if you're coming from a consulting firm, it's likely that you can't share client names. That's one. It's a big no-no. So don't do so on your resume. And, you know, people write things like, I consulted to a major software company in Redmond, Richmond. Hello? It's Microsoft. The only ones that are there. So don't do it. So the third mistake you should avoid is typos. You know, it's easy to miss typos, I know. I put out a book book once and we sold zillions of copies and found a typo, well, somebody found a typo on the very first page, despite the fact my publisher had read it nine times. I'd read it nine times and we still missed a simple typo. Um, so proof, proofread your resume multiple times. Have your friends proofread it. And according to Career Builder Survey, 58% of resumes have got typos in them, 58%. Beware of grammatical errors, incorrect alignment and more. Otherwise, the hiring manager thinks, hmm, this person doesn't pay attention to detail. I am not going to hire them. Now, an additional tip, read your resume from the bottom to the top. Reversing the order helps you focus on each line in isolation and you do find more typos. It sounds kind of weird, but it does. The fourth mistake you should avoid is making your resume too long. A good rule of thumb is one page of resume for every 10 years of work. So remember, the reason you present a resume is to get an interview, not to get hired on the spot. So once you're in the room, the resume doesn't matter a damn. It's up to you. The fifth mistake you should avoid is telling lies. There are a lot of things you can lie about on your resume. You can lie about your work experience, your college degrees, your GPAs, your sales results. And once you tell a lie during the hiring process, if it is discovered, you are screwed. So be very careful about um, lying on your resume. Now, hiring managers are looking for the best of the best. Equip yourself with the right knowledge about the mistakes other people make and you'll get that job you want. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Get out of the road and let somebody who wants to be successful and prepared to work their butt off get past you. Don't be a blocker. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. So don't aim for something ordinary. Aim for something outrageous. Even if you only get 90% there, you're a fucking long way ahead of where you would have been if you were looking to do something ordinary. And being ordinary is boring. Do you want to be the one person on the train in the morning that is boring? No, you don't. So bite off more than you can chew. Chew like hell. Hope to hell it comes off. And be smart about it. Have a great week.
be successful because the alternative to success really, really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. I'm broadcasting today from Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment in Los Angeles, the greatest city in the world. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.